You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. episode 174 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Alexis Neal, and with me today are Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and Kayla Beth Moore. Hey, Victoria and Kayla Beth. Let's introduce ourselves for any listeners who are new to the program. Hello. Uh, I am Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. I am one of the founders of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, For fun, I write about gender and culture and embodiment in various places on the internet. Uh, and uh, for money, I am an engagement manager for an agricultural marketing research firm. Uh, and what else? Oh, I am currently volunteering uh, with a high school and middle school drama class. Uh, so I spent yesterday uh going through scenes from The Crucible and saying things like, no, emote toward the audience, and do you think that is believable, and stuff like that to 16-year-olds, so it was fun times, and I'm excited sounds amazing. Excited to be here. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Uh, all right, uh, Kayla Beth, how about you? Hi, I'm Kayla Beth Moore. I'm very excited to be here. I am, uh, let's see, I'm a writer. I write stories and poems. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, where I teach sixth grade literature, which is not something I ever thought I would do, but which I love very much. Um, Before that, I studied religion and literature at Yale Divinity School. I have an MFA in creative writing, and I was the founding curator of the library at Grace Farms, which is a cultural center in Connecticut. And I'm also happy to say a friend of Victoria Farmer's. Thanks, KB. Well, Kayla Beth, I'm so excited to have you with us. I'm so excited to have two uh, ladies with such wonderful credentials and experience in uh, engaging with literature, because unlike both of you, um, I have no uh, training in literature. Um, My name is Alexis Neal. I live in southern Missouri with my husband, Coyle Neal, of the City of Man podcast, the uh, Christian Humanist Radio Network's political podcast. Um, and I am by training an attorney, so uh, not a, the most literary of fields. Lots of reading, not the most literary of fields. Um, but currently, I homeschool my two little boys and serve as an elected official for our uh, rural town. And so um, that's what I've been dealing with is uh, getting our transportation plan approved and our budget for next year approved and making personnel decisions and all of that. So uh, that's my chance to be an adult. That and this are my chance to be and talk with adults um, away from uh, the the hustle and bustle of dealing with a, a five and eight year old most of the time who are great company and quite precocious, but not the same as getting to talk with you lovely ladies. Um, so today's episode, we're going to be talking about Middlemarch. Um, the title Middlemarch is likely familiar to uh, many of our listeners, even if they've never actually had the opportunity to read the book themselves, uh, for the simple reason that this book pops up on just about every list of great novels ever. Um, it was published in installments in 1871 and 1872 under the title Middlemarch, A Study in Provincial Life by author George Eliot, which is the pen name of poet, journalist, translator, and most importantly for our purposes, novelist, Marianne Evans. We could and someday may do an entire episode just on Evans, so I won't cover her biography in too much detail, but some notable aspects include the fact that she fell away from her evangelical Christian faith uh, after being raised in the church, um, and that she was involved in a decades-long affair, although she would have categorized it more as a marriage, uh, with a married man, 
uh, the openness of which affair breached social conventions of the times and laid the couple open to disapproval. Uh, and I mentioned those two aspects of her biography because I think they're they are relevant to uh, to the novel um, and her perspective therein. Uh, the novel itself, which clocks in at over 800 pages, is set in a fictional English town between 1829 and 1832, uh, and it follows several intersecting stories across a robust cast of characters. There's a lot of there there with this novel, uh, far more than we'd ever have any hope of covering in a whole series of episodes. However, three female characters receive special attention throughout the novel, and we'll be talking about them today. But before we do, I want to give everyone a chance to share a little about their interactions with this novel and maybe their first impressions. So, uh, Kayla Beth, why don't you talk us through how you first uh, came to know Middlemarch and anything you want to tell us about um, that experience? Yeah, so I first came to this book. I had heard about it for many years and people that I knew and loved and respected had always endorsed it to me, but I picked it up right as the pandemic was beginning in early 2020 and I had just gotten engaged and my now husband, this is one of his favorite books and he'd been talking about it forever and it seemed like, okay, well, I have all of this time on my hands now. This seems like the the perfect time to read this book and I really wanted something that I could just throw myself into and sort of disappear in and I just devoured it. Um, I hadn't had a reading experience like that in a long, long time where I felt so absorbed. And it was also just incredibly educational, sort of as I was beginning to think about what marriage was going to look like in my life. And I really, at first, um, had so much sympathy and love for Dorothea and felt really, really defensive of her <laughs> from the very beginning. Um, the prelude to the book, which is so beautiful, um, talks about St. Teresa and the just sort of this phenomenon that there are women in the world who are born into periods of time and into circumstances for which their souls are just too large. And I remember reading that prelude and just being like, I have been waiting for someone to say this and explain this this feeling and I um so reading Dorothea's story is I'm sure we'll get into this it's it's gut-wrenching in many many ways and at least I was identified with her at least retrospectively I feel like there was a there was a version of me in my 20s that was achingly Dorothea-like and to my great relief I was not getting ready to marry <laughs> a Kasaban. um much, much the opposite. Um, but there is still so much there to sort of unpack and think about in that season of life. That would be a fascinating, I, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around what it would have been like to read this right around getting married and, and how, yeah. I mean, first of all, kudos to you for still getting married <laughs> after, right. after reading Middlemarch. But, uh, but yeah, that, that I could see that being a really, a really fascinating, um, intersection of experience and anticipation and, and, and this novel. So that's, yeah, that's really interesting to think about. Um, Victoria, what about you? Uh, so my, my experience is a little different. Um, I read this novel for the first time. I must've been 19 or 20 and, uh, it was in a, Victorian novel class my last year of college and yeah so if it was my last year of college I was 20 and I don't remember much about it at all from that reading except I've always said that I don't like this novel but I think two things I think I was reading so much that year um, we read something like 3,500 pages just in that Victorian novel class. And of course, I was taking um, three other upper level English classes at the time and writing tons and tons of giant term papers. So I think I just didn't have the brain space to um, to give the novel the time and the thought it deserves. Uh, so when I said I didn't like this novel before, I don't think I was giving it a fair shake. Um, I 
signed up for this podcast episode because I wanted to make myself read this novel again um, because lots of people, um, Kayla Beth among them, that I greatly respect uh, said that it was good and that I should uh, give it another chance. So I'm really glad that I did. Um, I My experience was a little bit like you said, Kayla Beth, Dorothea gave me a lot of emotions. Um, I, first of all, I knew I was in trouble from the very beginning of the prelude. Um, the, the invocation of, of St. Teresa of Avila, who is my patron saint. Um, as, as soon as it said what it said about her, I was like, oh, this is going to like make me confront a lot of emotions that I'm not sure I'm comfortable with. And it did. Um, I, I have a lot of love for Dorothea, but it is kind of a, I, I think, I don't know if I was texting you this, Kayla Beth, or uh, another friend of ours, but I said my primary emotion uh, toward Dorothea, at least in the beginning of the novel, is secondhand embarrassment on behalf of my younger self. Uh, I got married when I was 23, the same age that Dorothea is in the novel, and I didn't know anything about anything, and I thought that marriage was going to be this completely idealistic, romanticized thing, when in fact it is a deeply vulnerable relationship between two flawed human people, and um, Dorothea goes through that too, and so I, I really feel a lot of um, affection to that towards that, even though it was a very cringy experience for me looking back on my younger self. Um, but I'm definitely glad that I reread this novel because it has a lot of really beautiful things to say about womanhood and marriage and religion and virtue and lots of things that are very important to the way that I live my life. Thanks, Victoria. Um, I did not read this when I was younger and I had never really been attracted to it as a title because it was just this big thick book and I had no concept of what it was about and in a way that made me think it was just this very literary novel that's not really about things and I tend to read a lot of genre fiction where you can be like this is what this is about it's about aliens from Mars attacking robots or whatever um and so uh I hadn't, it just had never made its way to the top of my list, but I, a friend of mine started a book club last fall, um, and it was a book club specifically trying to go back and read classics that other people maybe read for school, but we just hadn't read, and um, she definitely likes more of the, the literary, uncharitably, the, the kind of novel where nothing happens is <laughs> maybe how I would say it, but but she was, was, was someone who, the, the woman who started the book club was someone who, who appreciated more of that, and I thought, well, I, I want to read those things too. Um, and so she had really wanted to read this. And um, so we read it in our book club over a course of about eight months. So one of the books um, within within the novel each month. Um, and we all really enjoyed it. Uh, and uh, and I was really excited to um, to be able to find other people to talk about it with me on this podcast uh, because um, I really liked the characters. Um, I liked thinking about virtue and um and a life well lived and all those different things um and like you ladies i i um connected a lot with with dorothea um and and with mary but but a lot with dorothea as well and um yeah i'm excited to talk with you about what they have to teach us about virtue so um with that we're going to be transitioning into our um our reading section um because this is an 800 page novel with a lot of different characters. I don't think that we will be doing much in the way of summarizing um, any of the events or telling even not much about the characters other than what is relevant to the particular point we're trying to make uh, if we're talking about a specific anecdote in their, um, in their story. Uh, so just as a heads up, if you haven't read it, may not always know what's going on, so go read it. Um, but uh, So we're going to talk about three women in, in the novel uh, Dorothea, and then Mary Garth, and then um, uh, we're going to talk about Rosamond, which we haven't talked about yet, and she's, maybe because she's not as much uh, someone that we identified with personally, <laughs> um, but 
we're going to have two different articles that we that we'll use in guiding us in our discussion. Um, one is an article called Middle March Marriages uh, by Sarah Clarkson that was published in Plow. And the other is uh, entitled, It Can Be Embarrassing to Love Dorothea from um, the Paris Review. Um, and that is by Pamela Ahrens. Um, and we'll have links to those in our show notes as well. All right. So to start us off, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Dorothea. Um, in the piece, It Can Be Embarrassing to Love Dorothea, uh, the author observes that Middlemarch is all about people trying to be good. And perhaps that's why I love it. Uh, um, so speaking personally for myself, I'm, I, that, that quest for virtue really appeals to me. Uh, maybe, maybe it's the Enneagram one uh, in me, so, so I've been told. Um, we have characters throughout this, even terrible characters, who um, are, are consumed with the idea of being good, even as they utterly fail to, to do so. Um, so as Pamela Ahrens observed, people are trying to be good out of religious belief or a desire to improve the lot of the common man or the love of a woman or an expiation of past badness. The attempt is portrayed as difficult, almost killing at times, and many of the characters fail at it spectacularly. Um, so, so in Dorothea, we have, um, as Aaron's explains to us, someone who is very passionate about doing good in the world. She has a fair amount of ambition. Um, she's uh, um, a, a sort of a, a saint in the in the wrong era, right? Doesn't 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 seem to fit in her her era and do be able to do the kind of good that she wants to do. Um, but with that, um, in this article, Aaron's points out that many readers today, especially women, are exasperated by Dorothea's high-mindedness. Um, when a college acquaintance saw me reading the novel for the first time, she told me she'd always wanted to wring Dorothea's neck, which I thought was really surprising. Um, so in the story uh, of Dorothea, she ends up in, in a marriage that is very, very difficult for her. Um, and, and she is originally engaged in this marriage out of uh, a desire to do good and accomplish things and what she thinks she'll be able to accomplish through her husband. Um, and, and I, I just, I, I thought that that was an interesting, well, it's, it's an interesting framing of their marriage and she struggles throughout the book to try and find what, what she can do, how she can do good in the world. Um, and in the end of her, her story after her first husband has mercifully died and she ends up with another character um, she doesn't ever achieve any kind of grand ambition in the sort of public sense. And that that's part of what people uh, maybe are frustrated with her about. Um, Dorothy was pretty popular in my book club, though, as I mentioned, um, it's, a, it's just a small book club. And actually the other book club members are uh, all homeschool moms. So who, who are obviously not out fulfilling ambitions in a grand public sense currently. Um, so maybe we were just always going to love Dorothea. Um, but some of the, some of the quotes um, from the text that I thought were particularly interesting about her achievements, such as they were, Dorothea herself had no dreams of being praised above other women. This is just from the very, very end of the novel. No dreams of being praised above other women, feeling that there was always something better, which she might have done if only she had been better and known better. Many who knew her thought it a pity that so substantive and rare a creature should have been absorbed into the life of another and be only known in a certain circle as a wife and mother. Um, and then the effect of her being of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Um, and I was reminded reading that of, uh, the section in the great divorce where C.S. Lewis, uh, was talking about his, you know, a vision of, of visiting heaven, sort of like Dante's Inferno, um, but with heaven. And, uh, there's a woman that he sees there who has like a whole parade after her of, of people and animals and all this stuff. And the, the narrator in that says, Oh, well, who, who's she, she must be really important. And his guide, uh, says, well, you wouldn't know who she is. She is important here. But the idea is she lived a life of faithfulness and kindness to those around her. Um, and so she is celebrated in heaven, even though she had this, the same kind of hidden life and resting in unvisited tombs. 
Um, so, so with that, I wanted to ask you guys, um, and you've sort of already talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but, but how did you feel about Dorothea? Were you disappointed in her arc and, and where sort of where she ends up? Um, and do you feel like she should have ended up somewhere else? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think, so I said, you know, kind of gave the story of when I read the novel for the first time and I had just a well of sympathy for her. I reread it this summer and I think I, I saw Dorothea in a, in a slightly different light. I think what I saw was that so much of her sort of um, drive and fervor to do good and to sort of make a mark and be, she has basically a vocational crisis <laughs> on her hands, which is that she wants an active life and there aren't really avenues for it. And I feel like that energy sometimes sours in her and what begins as a sort of, she's wanting to be humble, but it comes off as haughtiness and that so much of what she says and does comes out sideways just as pride. Um, you know, there's the one memorable scene where she and her sister who've, whose parents have passed are given some jewelry from their mother and her sister, who's a little more worldly and bubbly and sort of easy to please, is so eager to sort of put on these these jewels. And she picks out a little, you know, sort of a very minimalist cross. And she knows that Dorothea isn't the kind of person um, who's going to take to these. But she picks out the sort of simplest one and is like, wouldn't you want just this, this cross? Um, this very simple cross and Dorothea totally dismisses it. She doesn't want such trinkets, she calls them. Um, and Celia is deeply offended. You know, these are, it's like just moments like that, that happen again and again, where she's not really able to, she fails to really connect with the people around her or to sort of receive even counsel at times that would keep her from certain mistakes. Um, I also was when I was rereading it the second time, it was also for a book group, and no one in the book group liked Dorothea. Um, I was the only one who was kind of willing to stand, to stand up for her. Um, so I had I had kind of an opposite experience. But I'm curious what you would say, Victoria. So I I don't dislike her arc. Um, I I was in fact very happy to see where she ends up in the novel. Um, I I mentioned earlier that I've been spending um, some time lately hanging out with uh, teenagers in various volunteer capacities. And one of the things that I think it's very important for them to learn, um, because they are so young and idealistic and they want to, you know, make their mark and, and change the world, is that in some ways, the best way to change the world is is to serve the people around you and and make a big difference by making small differences to to the people that you can serve when you can serve them. And so I I was happy to see um, that lauded in Dorothea. Um, the thing that I and I I hesitate to say dislike because I that's not that's not accurate. The thing that makes me upset with her is is the thing that makes me upset with the uh, 23 year old newlywed version of myself, too, which is that um, both Dorothea and Casabon go into marriage um, not being in love with the actual human person that they are married to, but being in love with this very high minded um idealized version of that person you know she thinks that he's going to be this um amazing researcher that allows her to broaden her mind um by helping him with his work um and it turns out that he's um a basically a plagiarist and b um really just kind of stupid and and not really capable of of possessing original ideas and um by the same token he is in love with this idealized version of what he thinks um and intellectually minded wife is going to be and and they just don't take the time to actually 
listen to one another. And and that, to me, is the most um, frustrating thing about beginning Dorothea is that she she is incapable, probably because of both age and experience, in reconciling um, kind of her fantasy about married life with the reality and, and course correcting in an adequate way. But I didn't do that when I was 23 either. And, you know, now that I've been married for... 13, almost 14 years, uh, things look differently. And I, I, I know that that is, that's part of the critique that we get in the Middlemarch Marriages article. And, uh, and I'm just not sure. I'm not sure that I completely agree because I feel like she, she has that rude awakening when they're first married and they go on a honeymoon. Oh, the honeymoon. I could not handle it. I like yeah, it threw my book on the floor and was like, are you absolutely kidding me? So I like, 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 like you, Victoria, and maybe like you, Caleb, Caleb Beth, <clears throat> I identified strongly with Dorotheus. Of course, in any situation, it's very easy for me to see how she is the one who is in the right. But I felt like she did make an effort to pivot and adapt to the man she actually was married to. Um, and, was somewhat hindered in that by the fact that he was willing to do absolutely nothing in the way of compromise or, or attending to her or trying to know her at all. No, that's true. She does try. And I, I want to be very clear in my assertion that like Casabon is the worst. This is a yeah, novel. This is a novel full of like annoying, prideful, kind of dumb men and of all of them he is the very worst like i there is no mincing words about that he's terrible i 100 percent agree and i also agree with you alexis that she does pivot and she tries really hard to be like okay this is the person who is in front of me these are my options and he gives nothing and it's like he is incapable of intimacy there's no room in him to be able to sort of reach out <laughs> to her, even when she is sort of willing to put aside like what she wants out of the honeymoon or out of their domestic affairs. Um, she's willing to yield to whatever, to where he is. And he just isn't, he won't even acknowledge that what she's doing is, is trying to meet him halfway. Well, I think part of that is it's not even just that he, <clears throat> He, he can't do the intimacy. He doesn't seem to even see her. She's not even a person. Like, she's not even really there. She was brought in as, as this sort of window dressing to be around when he, when he felt like having her around, which is apparently never because he didn't actually think about whether he was ready to not be a bachelor, which apparently he was not. Um, <clears throat> he basically but, says he marries her because he wants a secretary. I mean, he says that, but then because he's partly because of his, I think, inferiority complex, justifiable inferiority complex about his work um but also he just he doesn't really know how to have a secretary so he doesn't actually ever make use of her to to do a lot of the things that that it seems like he thought that he would have her do but he has to he's just not in a position where he can take advantage of that or that she thought she was gonna be able to do so it seems like it's not even just like that they had different expectations going in but that he realizes once he gets there oh wait my expectations aren't gonna match reality because i'm not actually ready to have another set of eyes on this, especially not smart eyes. You might actually see the, the failings in my work. Um, so, but I just, I feel like he doesn't even see her, which is part of why, even though, uh, so, so the first marriage she has is with this older scholar um, and selfish ass. And then the second marriage that she has after he has mercifully died is with a young artsy type um, who ends up going into politics. And, and while, while her, her second husband, Will, is, is not, I mean, he's not like a towering figure of a man um, either, but uh, he has going for him that from almost the very beginning, he sees her. He sees her. He, he, um, he can understand some of her interiority. He cares about her. He cares about what matters to her. He's willing to live his life differently because of what matters to her. Her, her good opinion guides him to, toward more righteous behavior. So so where Kasaubin just was did not see her at all, one thing that Will has going for him um, and that helped me get over the fact that he was giving me major Willoughby vibes at the very beginning of the novel. So I was very concerned about how this was going to go with him. But he, he did not deserve that. <laughs> He's not Willoughby. He really sees her um, and he really does um, 
therefore, like as as a contrast, he he can give her something that that her first husband could not and would not give her. Um, so that made me more reconciled to him, even if he himself wasn't um, as amazing as I thought Dorothea was, and even if I felt like maybe the ending was a little too tidy. I have questions about whether he's going to transition from successfully from worshiping her to actually loving her as a spouse. Like I, I've actual questions about how that would work logistically the first time that she is just a jerk to him because she will be because she's a person um but at least at least he sees her totally i love the willoughby comparison because he is so um charming and charismatic and i do yeah it was it the um the paris review article that sort of talked about how kind of lackluster a character ladislaw is it seems like to me his his redeeming quality is that he recognizes a good thing in Dorothea. He like mm-hmm. sees her goodness and is compelled by it. Um, that seems to be his best quality. I agree that he's yep. not exactly like her, her match, but also it awakes something in her that she hasn't had. Like the book says again and again that she's been hungry her whole life for ardor. Like she's given it and given it and given it and hasn't received any back. And so, you know, part of me worries that she loves him because he was the first person to really show that back to her. But their connection is real and and they do like overcome a lot of obstacles to end up together. Yeah, I I agree with a lot of what both of you have said. Um, I echo what Kayla Beth said, that the Willoughby comparison is a good one. I was also worried about Will when he and Dorothea have that um, that moment in the art gallery. Is it when she's still on her first honeymoon? Is that when they yeah, see each yes. other? And I was immediately like, oh, no, this is bad. Like, because she's, she's going to go from kind of one direction of idealism to another. This sort of young, charming you know, attractive, artistic um, man, and he he's just kind of an extreme in the other direction. Um, so I, I'm with the both of you that I don't know whether um, whether that marriage is a good one because um, it, it might just be a course correction, but it is definitely better that he recognizes her value in a way that her first husband does not. That's true. Well, I could talk about Dorothea all day, but I know that we have two other characters we wanted to talk about. Um, so we're going to move on now from Dorothea to another also incredibly admirable and likable character, I think, uh, Mary Garth. So Kayla Beth, you want to talk to us about Mary Garth? I would love to. She is, you know, Mary sort of, I guess I was more interested in Dorothea on my first read, but on my second read this year, I am I am team Mary 100%. She is so great in so many ways. And in my mind, so much of Middlemarch is a sort of lesson in egoism for so many characters. Like so many of the pitfalls that they fall into are about believing that everything is kind of about them, believing that other people are thinking about them all of the time, seeing themselves and their needs kind of before other people's. And Mary is one of the few characters in the book that just is kind of exempt from this sort of poison. Um, And I think that there are several reasons for that, all of which are sort of like this, um, that make up her personality and her personhood. Um, She, you know, Elliot says at one point, honesty, truth-telling, fairness. These were Mary's reigning virtues. She neither tried to create illusions nor indulged in them for her own behoof. And when she was in a good mood, she had humor enough in her to laugh at herself. Um, I feel like her sense of humor is clutch to her story arc and to her sort of general happiness. Um, And I want to say more about that at the end. There's also a lot, because this is a Victorian novel that deals a lot with marriage, we know and are told again and again who is pretty and who is not, and she is not. Um, the word plain is thrown around about her all of the time. Um, but it's almost like this this sort of – anyway, it's, it's part of, I think, um, whether it's like 
Elliot doing some classic physiognomy that the plain person is virtuous, <laughs> or if it's genuinely that because she isn't praised for beauty, she has other, um, she's finding her value in other things. So that, that works itself into her character for sure. I think it's also notable, I've been thinking about this a lot, that she is one of the, of the three characters we're going to talk about anyway, she's the only one who works. Um, she, she has various jobs at different points in the novel. She has an active life. She has, and I think that that, I mean, Dorothea suffers from not having that again and again and again. It's one of her primary sort of thinking and talking points is, oh, if only I had something to do, if my husband would actually use my services, if I could actually um, build a model village and give everyone what they need and organize things how I wanted to. Mary does actually have outlets for her energy. She works for um, the, oh, I thought Featherstone, the old man, who, um, one of the wealthy characters for a while. She sews. She does other odd jobs. Um, she's also just generally content with her life. She has a wonderful community, a wonderful family. She loves and admires her parents. Um, this is maybe also another passage that has to do with the fact that she doesn't assume everything is about her. Having early had strong reason to believe that things were not likely to be arranged for her peculiar satisfaction, she wasted no time in astonishment and annoyance at the fact. And she had already come to take life very much as a comedy. Um, I feel like that helps her again and again, and it especially helps her in her love life. There are two men who are in love with her in the story. Fred is the first, who is um, her true love. They've known each other since they were young. Fred is full of life and personality, comes from a wealthier family in Middlemarch. Um, he sort of drops out of Oxford, doesn't finish his degree, comes back into town. And his parents really want him to go back, finish his degree so that he can enter the church. Their argument being that's a fixed income. It's also sort of ele would elevate his position and their family standing as well. But Mary sees this as a complete farce. She says that she will not have him if he takes that route because she sees, A, he's not called to ministry. He has no sort of um, religious or pious fervor. Um, he would only be doing it for the sort of social gain, and she will not tolerate that. So we see Fred at the beginning sort of as this fop. He is um, concerned about his clothes, what horse he's going to ride. He loves to go hunting. He gambles, which becomes a major problem even for Mary's family when Fred takes on a debt and names Mary's father as security for that debt when he can't pay Mary's father has to step in and pay that debt with money that is set aside for Mary's brother to go to school. And so when the, their family, who's not wealthy, not nearly as wealthy even as Fred's family, when they have to pay up, everybody in that family feels Fred's mistake. Mary begins to look for employment. She's going to go work at a school somewhere, and it's only by luck and chance um, slash Providence that her dad is given a sort of advancement in his business just in time so that Mary doesn't have to move away and teach at a school to make up for Fred's recklessness. And I think that this is, as a spoiler, Fred and Mary in the end end up as one of the few really happy married couples. Um, I think so much of that is the fact that Mary sees him for what he is. She knows that he has these really glaring faults and she also loves him. She also has practice at forgiving him. And Fred is sort of by love of Mary able to sort of, um, to, as to use a term that's been, that we've used already, make a course correction. And he's not able to do that by himself. Um, the Clarkson article makes a good point that it's sort of the community that surrounds Mary and Fred that sort of help them make it, um, especially that help Fred to be worthy of Mary. So Mr. Fairbrother is the other person who's worthy of, who is in love with Mary. And no one has any delusions that Fairbrother is actually the much worthier person. <laughs> I think even Mary acknowledges that. At one point, 
her dad says something about Fred, what it would be like to marry if if Mary does marry Fred, and he says um, something about it not being a fine match. And Mary says, I know it's not a fine match, but there's no one else I would rather scold, <laughs> basically. And we see that sense of humor coming in, this idea that she thinks of life as a comedy. These things ha things happen that make everything go awry, but it turns out in the end, and, and that love, love can win. Fairbrother is great. He's quirky. He's the local clergy person. Rather, when he sees Fred kind of slipping morally, there's a moment where Fred begins to sort of gamble again. And rather than sort of take the advantage on Fred and move in on Mary, he confronts Fred and basically says, you have the love of a wonderful person and I don't want to see you throw that away. Even though he himself would love to have Mary's love, he sees that Mary does actually love Fred and she isn't going to love anybody else. And to Mary's credit, she's very clear about that with everyone from the beginning. A, she's clear that she's not going to marry Fred unless he finds, unless he sort of stops being idle, that he finds work that's sort of worthy of his time. So she has like a very clear boundary around that. But then she also is very clear that no matter if Fred, what Fred does, she's still going to love him best, basically. Um so that is, she, that's why I love Mary. She loves him enough to call him out on his crap, too, which I love. Like, I yes. I started the novel being like, oh, Fred is obnoxious. Like, he's this very – I know we've already made um, Austin comparisons. He's this very, like, Wickham-esque kind of um, charmer who is just concerned with, with hedonistic – uh, pleasures and Mary is so great that she sold me on Fred. I thought, well, if you know, M Mary is such a fantastic person that if she believes in him, maybe I should too. And uh, and especially that that scene you mentioned, KB, between Fairbrother and Fred, um, where Fairbrother really takes the high road and says, "Look, like I." Like you said, this woman loves you and I respect her, so get it together. Um, I thought it was a, a really beautiful scene. And sort of a flip of that, what sold me on Fred or, or what helped me to think that Fred had potential um, was because what he has going for him is that he loves Mary. Um, so, which is... Kind of like we talked about with with Will, that 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 his love for Dorothy is one of his redeeming qualities. Uh, with Fred, you have the fact that he loves Mary, who is awesome, but as we said, not conventionally attractive, um, and he loves her in spite of the, the of of that, and and possibly in spite of or because of the fact that his sister's the town hottie. So he lives with someone who is very conventionally attractive. Maybe that's why he sees how much it doesn't matter because his sister's maybe not so great. Um, but that that he had the the wisdom and the insight to value Mary and and like unreservedly without falter and no like there he has eyes for nobody else and his family's like what Mary like she's nobody he's like you don't understand Mary is it and he just his his devotion to her and his perception of her value um, I was really like man don't make him terrible because he seems like he should he should be redeemable he should he should have a good arc move toward improvement and I was very pleased um that he did uh, as an aside when I was reading up a little bit about Elliot um one of the things I read said that she was actually not considered attractive um as a child and that was the reason her dad was willing to invest in her education because she was not as attractive so uh, and her dad also in um uh, Elliot's dad was the uh, manager of an estate, which is what Mary Garth's dad does in the novel. So um, some interesting connections there with um, with George Elliot and Mary Garth. One thing I thought was interesting too with the um, uh, with the Clarkson piece on Middlemarch marriages. In the Clarkson piece, she very much is like, "This is the marriage, right? Like Mary Garth and Fred Vincy. This is the marriage. Everybody else gets it wrong. This is the one." And I, I was reading that, and partly because I'm defensive of Dorothea, I was like, well, I don't know that that's fair. And part of what I thought about was so much of what she talked about is sort of strengths of Mary's relationship with Fred. 
and she characterized them as because Mary truly loves Fred in a way that Dorothea doesn't love Casaubon and 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 Rosamond doesn't love uh, Tertius or whatever. But but it seemed like it was. I was wondering, is it really that she loves him more or that she just, she knows him? Um, and I was thinking there's a, a, a quote, Jen Wilkin, the, the Bible study teacher, um, quotes all the time when she's talking about using our minds to study the scriptures, says, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. Um, Dorothea's knowledge of Kasaubin is so limited based on how long they've actually known each other, what kind of interaction they have. Uh, same is definitely true for Rosamond and for uh, for Tertius. Mary and Fred have grown up together and the kind of love that we're talking about calling someone um, on on their mistakes um, being frank with them knowing them in all their their messiness and choosing to love them anyway how's Dorothea gonna pull that off she doesn't know the guy she's met him in in society a few times um, and, and I don't even think that the answer there is so obviously everyone should marry someone they grew up with like I think you can still end up in a really healthy marriage even if you don't know each other as well but if all you've known your your spouse as is only to date them, like I feel like that's no matter how long you date, like there there is a certain degree of like that's just going to be different than if you grew up together. And so I wanted to be fair and say I'm not sure how much of Mary and Fred's relationship is because their love is higher or just they're further along in that pattern because they've they've known each other so long. Does that it make does. sense? It does. I really like that because it's also the case that like when you when you know someone, you um, it's not just that you know what you're getting, you know where you stand with them, you know their you know their foibles as well. And I think it's like it's also the case with Rosamond and Dorothea. And I, I think this happens to a lot of young women where we often mistake love for just my sympathetic nervous system is inflamed when I'm around this person. Um, and when you know someone, it's not just like this, the sort of rush, right? Um, so whereas like in dating or certainly in the case, in the sort of world that these women are moving in, where you get these little tiny snatches of conversation and big groups, usually um, with people, you get this flush of feeling and then you can project onto that to your heart's content. I also think that another thing that makes that marriage work is that Mary doesn't need marriage to change her life in any way. She's happy with the life that she has. There's a, there's a moment when Caleb Garth comes to her at the end of the book and he says, you know, Mary, it's going to be a sad while before you and Fred can marry. And she says, it might be a while, but I don't plan on it being sad. I plan on it being Mary. <laughs> um, she said, I've been happy for 24 years of my life. I can be happy again for two to six more years. You know, like she's not hanging her hopes on what marriage is going to make of her life. Unlike both Dorothea and Rosamond. Totally, totally. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I just I like when I again reading that. Middlemarch Marriages article and they, the it's critical criticizes Dorothy a little bit saying she related to Casaubin as an ideal she could attain that would fulfill her need for significance rather than as a human being she could love in all his stark need a living person who could demand the gift of her whole self as well as provide its fulfillment all right maybe I'm a terrible person but I was like who doesn't go into marriage thinking that the other person is to some degree an ideal that will help you achieve something like you, you, you think you're going to get something out of it. And yeah, you, you are going to learn that they're a whole person and that they have terrible weaknesses and sin and that you have terrible weaknesses and sin that you were not fully aware of. Like, it just seemed a little unfair, given that so much of what Mary has in that in that category is just because she's known. She knows Fred. She's seen all of what he's done, uh, what he's done. She knows his weaknesses. She's seen him screw up. And as you pointed out, Kayla Beth, she knows that when she calls him on something, he's going to listen because he respects her. What's going to happen to Dorothy if she tries to call Casalbin on something? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? It would not be productive of anything. It just it felt it felt unfair. Like like it was just a, they're a different point. Like Dorothy is at the very beginning of a relationship, doesn't have that standing, doesn't have the knowledge. And once she gets it, she try. I mean, I feel like she tries her level best to love the husband she has. And it sucks. But she is trying 
to to love the husband that she has and it's it's such a convicting picture because man her husband is so terrible and she she tries so faithfully and i don't try nearly as hard and my husband's great so um but um but yeah i just i, I didn't want to be unfair again i'm just defensive of dorothea i think is the takeaway here but um <laughs> but yeah that that so much of what mary has going for her is just the longevity of their relationship and her security knowing that fred cares about her opinion but we still have someone else to talk about. So in the interest of trying to, to uh, be respectful of time, we'll go ahead and move on and talk about Rosamond. Victoria, tell us how Rosamond is amazing. Uh, well, she's not. And that's, and that's <laughs> why I want to talk about her. So uh, as we have said, this is a novel that contains within it several very sad marriages. Um, I think that Rosamond's marriage is the saddest, and that is why I want to talk about it. So I see Rosamond and Lydgate's marriage as a, a kind of foil-slash-evil mirror image <laughs> of um, Dorothea and Casavon's marriage. Um, it is also rooted in idealism, um, but I think where... Dorothea and Casavon's marriage is about um, their ideals of the other person. Rosamond and Lydgate's marriage is about um, ideals that they think they are going to receive from people outside of the marriage. Um, Rosamond marries Lydgate because she thinks he's going to make a lot of money and turn her into a, a kind of belle of society. Um, and he marries her because she is, as we've, um, already intimated kind of the, the prettiest, um, girl around and has a lot of social standing because of that. And they get married because they are, uh, infatuated with one another. They have that, um, Ner sympathetic nervous system reaction that Kayla Beth mentioned. Um, by the way, I'm stealing that in the future. It's fantastic. Um, and, but nothing really comes of it. It doesn't deepen. Um, they realize that the status they thought they were going to achieve from marrying each other doesn't happen. Uh, and they start to resent one another because of that, because they don't get to the place they think they're going to go. And that resentment just kind of ossifies and solidifies, and they don't really communicate with each other and just kind of sit in this resentful relationship. And it is incredibly dark and sad and disappointing. And the reason I picked um, Rosamond to discuss, even though um, the other two women are probably A, more sympathetic, and B, um, drawn with more depth, is that I, um, I see myself in Rosamond, not actually, but I, the, the kind of darkest version of myself, the, if my sin nature were allowed to do all the things that it wants to do, um, I could see myself turning into her relationally, um, because I'm a, I am a grudge holder. I shut down in arguments. I, um, have to work really hard to be vulnerable and admit my faults and so because I see a lot of my own worst tendencies in her, um, I, I have a degree of sympathy for her. And I also think it's important to think about her as a character because um, I think one of the things that uh, literature can do for us is, um, is you know, do, do what Hamlet says, hold a mirror up to nature and, and show us the kinds of things we don't want to be just as it can show us the kinds of things we do want to be. Um, so Rosamond's marriage is sad and it makes me sad, but I also think it's important to think about. Victoria, do you think that Rosamond could have a happy marriage with anybody? I think she would have to do a lot of work on herself first. 
Yes. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that she, she hides from herself, right? She, the reason that she values the things that she values socially and physically and visibly and, um, and all of that is because she doesn't really want to do the work and, and see what's underneath because she's, because she's always been rewarded for the surface things. And so why should she have to do anything else? Yeah, there's this great line somewhere in the book where the narrator says something to the effect of it isn't her problem isn't with Tertius, it's with marriage and the self-suppression of it, um, which is one of the. Yeah, as a as a person who was reading this, getting ready to be married, I found that a sobering line. Well, I think one of the things that's frustrating about Rosamond's marriage, because it, it is true, both of them go in not really seeing the other. Right. So if, if Dorothea thinks she sees Casalbin and then finds out that he is other than what she thought, um, Rosamond only ever sees Rosamond um, and 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 Lydgate is a means to an end. And Lydgate is 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 infatuated with with this attractive uh, woman who is attracted to him. Uh, even though he had no no intention of marrying, even though it kind of distracts him from his professional goals. But when they're in the mess, she she's a means to an end too, though. Like I think, I think that they are they fail in a very similar way. I mean, I think they do, but but he like marriage for her, marriage like she is from the beginning, like marriage to someone who can elevate me and get me out, marriage to someone who can elevate me and get me out. And he's very like, I don't want to get married again. He's had had this past love affair. It's just a distraction from work. Maybe one day he'd get married, but he's not in any hurry. And then he meets her and she's way more attractive and they're swept along and and all of a sudden he's getting married. Um, so uh, it, it's not as much I, uh, the, that articulated, like, this is my goal and this is how she helps me get there. Um, and, and, and even then once they're in the mess, he, he, tr he tries, like he tries, he doesn't do a great job. He's not great at it. He's also kind of used to doing kind of what he wants when he wants to, he has his own goals and he's not used to taking people into account. He gets in trouble all the time in his medical practice because He's not conciliatory enough and he's offending people with his newfangled medical ideas and, and this and that. Um, so he's not great at that to begin with. But but there are some really heartbreaking passages where he is trying um, and there is just no reciprocity from Rosamond. Um, and and it it's so sad and infuriating because he's trying to make her see, you know, there's times where they're, they're in financial straits that the big pressure point for them is finances because she wants to live a certain way. Um, and the, the practice will not support that. And he's trying to make cuts and she is not cooperating. And like, there is just, there is no way he can make her see. She will not see, she will not receive that information. Um, he wants her to behave a certain way or, or, or something. And then as soon as he leaves, she will make the disastrous attempt to get money from a, a relative of his or something. And, and, and there's just no way to get through to her. There's no way he can can get through like she is just insulated against that um and she has one one moment in the book where she thinks about someone else and it's it's kind of astounding because it, it it's so out of character for her to think about someone else in that way and, and unfortunately it sounds like it's kind of a one-off she doesn't get to be like a better person um later on and they don't have a happily ever after but but i do think there is a difference like we see him trying to make some overtures and we see him looking at her with some kind of fondness, even if it's just because she's so attractive and he, he looks at her and is reminded of that. Whereas I just, we feel like I don't, we don't think we see any warmth from her toward him basically once they're married. Um, it's just, it's, it's not, it's not That's there. true. That's a fair point. Um, one other thing I wanted to say and a, a passage I wanted to point to is that it gets so um, bad for her. She's so, she feels so, um, static and trapped that she starts to um, project romantic feelings onto Will Ladislaw and um, she kind of fantasizes that he has feelings for her. Um, he tells her that he doesn't in this really wonderful um, romantic scene where he says that loving Dorothea is like breathing um, to him, which 
I would like to see a million movie scene versions of please people who make movies. Uh, but the the quote in chapter 74 um, about her projection that I really loved, men and women make sad mistakes about their own symptoms, taking their vague, uneasy longings, sometimes for genius, sometimes for religion, and oftener still for mighty love. Uh, this idea that sometimes we're so looking for something that we will latch on to, to any big idea that will get us out of whatever um, sad emotional state we've found ourselves in. Any other thoughts on Rosamond before we move to passing on? Just one, which is that, that struck me in this reread was that there's a moment and it's, you know, I guess classic Victorian novel where they, she has a miscarriage and the sort of, you know, only God knows how and why such things happen. But the insinuation in the novel is that she is on it. She goes riding on a horse. Um, Lydgate tells her that is not safe. He does not want her to do that. She does it a second time. There's an accident. She loses the baby. And it's, it's, it just is so gut-wrenching and I it's like there's this opportunity there I feel like for the two of them to connect in this moment of crisis but it's it's so glossed over and it's so just like she only brings it up one more time the only time she speaks of it directly is when they are having all of these marital financial problems and she says I wish I died with the baby and it's it just rips my heart out but it's awful it's so bad but it's almost like if it's it's sort of baffling that that doesn't sort of I don't really understand how that doesn't in some way um soften a married couple to each other in a way but it it doesn't maybe it's who knows but I found that gut-wrenching and really baffling this time my view on them is that they're both kind of sunk cost fallacying their way along that they that they both feel like they're so deep in this and they've made all of these choices that have entrenched themselves into this incommunicative uh situation that they just they don't know what else to do or how else to be yeah I think that's right. Well, on that uplifting note, um, let's go ahead and shift to passing on. So this is the, the portion of our podcast where we, we make recommendations to you, the listener, um, that relate to in some way to our um, to our discussion today. So. Kayla Beth, what do you have to recommend to us? So I had a great moment of serendipity in a thrift store recently with a book, and it is Godric by Frederick Buechner. And I love Frederick Buechner. I had only ever read his sort of spiritual writing. There are certain Frederick Buechner quotes that to me are like, has been as influential to my like spiritual growth and formation as Bible person. <laughs> I really love him, but I had never read any of his fiction and didn't really, I guess, even know that that was his first gig, but he was a great novelist. This book was nominated for the Pulitzer in 1981. Um, the Plow article that we've referenced um, by Clarkson makes a big deal about how um, Middle March is also, because of the framing with the prelude in St. Teresa, a sort of march toward sainthood, or an, at least an analysis of like how sainthood works. Godric is the story of, I think he's a 12th or 11th century English hermit, and he's telling sort of the story of his life. The syntax is wild. It is an insane and incredibly weird book. Um, I was hooked from the first sentence, which is five friends I had and two of them snakes. It's wonderful. Please read it. Um, Frederick Wiener passed in August. Um, and this is a wonderful book. Well, now I want to read it. Uh, so well done. Uh, Victoria, what about you? Uh, so I feel like I'm cheating a little bit. 
but I, as I said early in the podcast, and as I said in October when we uh, recorded an episode for her feast day, um, my patroness is Saint Teresa of Avila, and so the uh, the beginning of this book that invokes her really kind of sucked me in. Um, her story is so beautiful. Um, she starts out as this kind of silly child who really hungers to be martyred by any means necessary um, while not understanding what it means to be martyred. Um, and she grows so much in faith. Um, I mentioned on the previous podcast that I pray her prayers all the time. So uh, all that is to say, my recommendation is the autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila, uh, the Life of St. Teresa by Herself. Um, fantastic uh, subtitle. So everyone, please uh, read that, especially if you felt connected to Dorothea. Thank you for that recommendation. And another recommendation, if you felt connected to Dorothea, um, and I think I've recommended this on other episodes as well, but I'm going to keep recommending it until everybody has read it, and that is... Uh, An Old Fashioned Girl by Louisa May Alcott. Um, if you, like me, struggle to enjoy Little Women because of Terrible Amy, rest assured this is not like Little Women. There is no Terrible Amy in this book. Um, but An Old Fashioned Girl is the story of um, a girl from the country from a poor family who goes to stay with wealthy and deeply unhappy friends in the city. Um, and by her daily faithfulness and her uh, desire to live out the virtues that she has had taught to her in her home of being kind, of being respectful of, of her elders, of caring for others, for being compassionate, all those things um, just has a transformative effect on this deeply unhappy family. Um, and it's just, I, I read it at a fairly young age because like, uh, like many other Alcott titles, it, it is accessible for younger readers. Um, and was, it was just a very convicting picture to me of the, that ripple effect, that diffusive effect of, of a small and faithful life, um, that she's not doing anything big and exciting. She's not this, uh, you know, this martyr maybe out there who's known everywhere, but, but she, she has utterly transforms this family, um, just by going and trying to be faithful. Um, and it's, it's so convicting and encouraging and, and Polly is the best. So, um, uh, an old fashioned girl by Louisa May Alcott. Um, I just, I love that book. So that's my recommendation. And with that, uh, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CA Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Victoria Reynolds Farmer and Kayla Beth Moore, I'm Alexis Neal. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss medieval poet Christine de Pizan. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.